morning and welcome to Rising. We've got an incredible show for you today. Brianna, what do we have? Well, Team Rising is going to weigh in on Joe Manchin's blitz across the aisle on abortion. And Katie Halper will discuss the tragic murder of Al Jazeera's Shireen Abu Kala. Plus, we'll discuss the latest on crypto dips with Liz Wolf. But first, yesterday, Dr. Anthony Fauci and other members of the NIH testified on President Biden's 2023 budget request for the agency at a House Appropriations Subcommittee hearing. Now, Fauci was questioned on the impact of the lockdowns that we know contributed to an increase in mental health issues for young people, drove alcohol and drug use through the roof and all sorts of other social ills. The Washington Post reports that in 2021, more Americans died from overdoses than ever before, up 15 percent from 2020. Over 100,000 lives were lost to overdoses, meaning the epidemic has now claimed one million lives in the 21st century. Now, when asked about the correlation between lockdowns and mental illness, here's what Fauci had to say. During the times of the lockdowns, the data that we have seen following these lockdowns um, has shown that we have had increases in um, depression among young people. Suicide. There's no doubt that when you yes put... Yes or no, if you could just... I'll answer the question. There's no doubt when you put restraints on society that it causes emotional and mental stress. There's no doubt about that. But you have to have a balance of saving people's lives from getting infected in hospitalizations. Would you agree that suicide rates are, have increased among young people? Indeed, they have. Would you agree that domestic violence rates have increased? Uh, yeah, well, the answer is yes, but I'm wondering what that has to do with the question you're asking me. Would you agree that drug and alcohol use increased during these lockdowns? Well, I, I'm not sure the lockdowns itself did it. And I'm wondering why you're asking me about lockdowns, because there were not complete lockdowns in this country. Right. And he goes on to say that, well, China, those are the ones really locking people down, which, OK, sure. Yes, what China is doing is crazy compared to even what we did, but like kids were kept out of school for an entire year in some places or for, for more. Um, they were young people were were very locked down. Their entire social lives were shut down. Their their uh, sports, extracurricular activities, their social lives were were very much shut down by government policy. So he's he's clearly, you know, he he get, he got what the thrust of those questions were. It's to make him look bad for having supported such policies, but he deserves that because he did support such policies. Well no. Well, for one, I think the distinction he's trying to make between what happened in China, which was a real lockdown, people not being permitted to leave their homes, mm -hmm. and what was happening today, that's a meaningful distinction if we're asking the question, were people able to make the, uh, have the certain, certain kinds of, a certain degree of social interaction? In China, the answer might be no if you're literally unable to leave your home. In America, not being able to go to school or having your workplace closed meant that people could choose, using the freedom that exists in America, to meet up with people and, and meet up with their friends outside of school and things like that. And to the extent that people chose not to, I think it was in large part because there was a global pandemic. Remember, the years before the, the year before the vaccine, when you, got, when you got sick, you could get really, really sick, and many young, healthy people were going to the hospital and even dying. We know we have a million people who have died from this. So I think it's worth making that distinction because while some onus is on the government, 
there is also onus on individuals for also making the same decision the government did and deciding it was safer to stay at home and deal with the mental health consequences of that than go out and potentially getting a life-threatening illness. Now, I'm with you that some of the COVID recommendations that happened, especially post-vaccine, weren't well calibrated to what the actual risk profiles were of different populations. But I, I don't think that Fauci is entirely wrong there to want to make some specific distinctions between both what happened in here and what happened in China and what degree of caution and kind of shutting down social life was because of government recommendations or schools being shut down and how much was because Americans were living through a stressful time and chose to self-quarantine because they didn't want to get a virus. But it was, the, the kids did not get a I mean, you say, OK, they could still see their friends, I guess. But so much of their lives is structured around school, which was the thing that remained closed the long of all sectors of our society. The thing that was was shut down, lightly locked down, locked down to some capacity, the longest or restricted was schools, which makes no sense whatsoever because the school age population is the least at risk. There's some risk still, sure, uh, but, but less so than the, the, the general population. Many people went back to work or were working the whole time. And the, but the schools were univer almost universally more closed than anyone. And, and no one, if, right, if Fauci objected to that, he didn't start complaining about it until the very end, until it was too late. Well, okay, I completely grant that some of the school policy was not well calibrated. I also have a lot of friends with young kids whose kids are preschool age who very much did lament that they weren't able to take their kids to playdates, right. et cetera. And that wasn't because playdates were shut down by the government. It's because all the other parents decided it wasn't worth the risk or they formed very small pods with just a couple of other families so they can continue those kind of behaviors. But schools aside, and I, and I grant you some, some points there, He's talking about the opioid epidemic. Certainly there are some high school students that engaging in drug use, but I suspect a huge population of the, of the folks who were you know, taking more drugs and suffering from overdoses during this period, they were adults. There were people who were well out of mm -hmm. school age who are suffering with addiction. And, and I think that we have to have, I mean, I think it's fair to have a conversation about the trade-offs. We were talking about this yesterday. The trade-offs that are going to occur when there is a government policy trying to stop a pandemic and all the other downstream effects. And we should be having a fulsome conversation about what was worth it and what wasn't worth it. But to pretend like there aren't going to be some negative consequences of the kinds of interventions that are necessary to shut down a pan pandemic, I think is perhaps a little strong. Yeah, well, we just have a lot of questions about how much good they those interventions did, mm -hmm. and now when we're considering, yes, the right, the increase, the things we're talking about. I mean, the increased crime, right? The the car, even in D.C., the carjackings that are going on, the 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 really antisocial incidents that are, by and large, to my understanding, being committed by young people. Well, the by, crime crime in 2020 was down, if I recall correctly. No, it's going up. In in 2020, the year of the pandemic, I mean, it everyone measures was how inside. You, right. <laughs> Nobody did anything. Some categories of crime are going down. Lockdown. Some categories of crime are going up. But the, the, the trend is not good. The broad, you know, dec uh, crime decline that began in the early 1990s that, like, then a massive decline over the next 10 years, and then it continued decline is starting to go back the other way. Well, that's a, a much better conversation to be had yeah. with a lot of statistics that are not at our fingertips right now. But with respect to Fauci, after that, he was asked about his continued pause on gain-of-function research. Let's, let's watch. You advocate for a continued pause of gain-of-function research, sir. I, I think it's very important, uh, Congressman, to make sure that we abide by the set guidelines of the conduct research one of the problems with the word gain of function it means so many different things to different people so what we have done and we're very very flexible in re-looking at 
those guardrails that when you are doing work on different pathogens, there have been a multi-year process that have set the guardrails of doing that. And those guardrails have worked really quite well. He also gave a flat out no when asked if he was responsible for swatting the lab leak theory in the first place in early 2020. Moving on, when the prospect of a lab leak from Wuhan gained traction in April of 2020, Dr. Collins told you that they should find that you should find some way to quote put down this very destructive conspiracy. We also understand that Dr. Collins emphasized that the lab leak theory could damage science and international harmony. Uh, did you direct letters to two professional journals be written, The Lancet and Nature Medicine? No. You did not ask Dazic to write the letter to The Lancet? No. Did you review it before it was sent? No. Okay. Yield back. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I don't have any insight into whether or not he directed the letter, but it seems like the, the questioner certainly believe that to be the case. <laughs> right. Right. Well, right, we've heard, um, you know, the, the, those calls they had about, right, this is a conspiracy and, you know, how do we, and then they were very, uh, so we t people should look back at uh, Ryan's previous uh, reporting on this uh, for greater context, but th there uh, was some indication that health officials were, were going way too far to, like, shut down discussion mm. of the lab leak theory. And, you know, as for the gain of function stuff, it's just so, it's, it's very irritating when he tries to say, he tries to define it in such a way, like, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. Like, but that is what we're talking about. Mm. That's like, don't, don't try to play that game. We have serious concerns about the research that was funded by the U.S. government, done in lab conditions that we don't believe, that we, actually that we know we're not totally safe, regardless of whether that is the origin of this disease. And the people have a right to be concerned and even outraged about that. And they don't want, the, the scientists, the public health officials, the Fauci-type people, don't want to be subjected to the scrutiny. They don't, they're, they fight transparency. They don't want anyone to say, you can't tinker with this. You can't, you know, toy with Frankenstein's monster because it might come to life and kill us all. And they, but they're scientists. They don't want those kinds of limitations imposed on them. And, uh, and, he, and he, it's a sleight of hand for him to say it's not, well, it's not gain of function. We're talking about different things. Sounds like gain of function to me. Fine. <laughs> Fine. We'll call it something else if you like. But that thing we don't really want done anymore. Yeah, I do remember I interviewed uh, Thomas Frank around the time that we were just starting to be allowed publicly to talk about lab leak theory. Right. Banned on, you get taken down on Facebook <laughs> if, you said, if you said the words. Yeah, and, and one of the facts of how it all played out that was most damning to me was that in the initial blitz of reporting about how it couldn't possibly be um, lab leak theory, you know, then that would have this like socially detrimental, detrimental effect if people believed it were lab, lab leak theory. The person cited in all of the mainstream articles had a relationship in funding one of the labs. And those kinds of conflicts of interest make it very difficult, very difficult to have long-term credibility in these kinds of institutions and these kind of people who are at the same time um, supportive of shutting down different kinds of speech and like flat-out bans of, of discourse in these kinds of areas. So it's frustrating for sure. Well, later on in the hearing, the acting NIH director, Lawrence Tabak, told the committee that federal law allows royalty payments to the NIH, but agreed that it gives the appearance of a conflict of interest in response to a question about endorsing particular medicines. When asked about a Chinese request to hide the early COVID genes, here's what the director had to say. 
There's no question that the communication that we had about this sequence uh, archive, uh, sequence read archive, um, could have been improved. I, I, I freely admit that. Um, if I may, um, the, the, the archive um, never deleted the sequence. It just did not make it available for interrogation. So wait, you have the information? We have the information. We've so it wasn't, I, the way it was reported is it was pulled out, the, the, the early genomic right. sequencing was removed by a Chinese researcher. So anybody who submits to the sequence read archive is allowed to ask for it to be removed. And that investigator did do that, but we never erase it. Oh, so you don't have the information anymore? We, we do. We, we never erase the information. We keep it. So they were with it, they were able to withdraw public viewing public of it? Public viewing. That's correct. <laughs> it's, not, it's not erased. We just hid it at request of the Chinese. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> Great. Oh, that's so much better. Wonderful. Yeah, and to, for for background, what is the what we're talking about here? The the sequencing for the COVID gene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, meaning that this is this, the argument here is that they had it and they were this is right. the lab leak right. the basis yeah. of lab leak yeah. theory. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, it's just it, it it's the lack of tra look it's the lack of transparency. It's the contempt for people who have honest who have sincere questions about what they were doing. That they are just, they, they, they clearly don't want to answer them. They hate being hauled behind, before these, like Fauci has this defiance about him every time he has to, he, mm. you know, is deigns to have to answer uh, questions from the elected representatives about this. And I, I just, I find this entire attitude infuriating. Like they should work for, uh, this is an unaccountable bureaucracy with now massive power over our lives, to, like to dictate literally which direction you walk down the grocery store is a power they have claimed for themselves. And they hate being subjected to any amount of democratic accountability. Forget democratic accountability. They're not at all accountable to that. But to e even a bare minimum of transparency and, and asking questions that we have, uh, they, they hate doing it. And it it comes out in their tone every time they're forced to. <laughs> All right, Robbie, tone policing. <laughs> Is that what I'm doing? <laughs> tone policing? All right, well, I look forward to your radar coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, today I'm asking, what really caused the baby formula shortage? We've talked a lot on this show about the politics surrounding the formula shortage. The tone deafness of corporate politicians who applaud themselves for sending billions of arms to billions in arms rather to Ukraine while American parents struggle to literally feed their babies. But we haven't truly unpacked how this happened. How could it be in the richest country in the history of the world? We can't even keep enough baby formula on hand to feed our children. Well, the answer to that question is that we have to go back to the beginning of the story, to the roots of the recall of Similac, a leading baby formula manufactured by Abbott Nutrition. And that story all started with a whistleblower. Back in October of 2021, an employee at Abbott Nutrition Production Facility, known as the Sturgis Plant, sent a whistleblower letter to the FDA. It alleged, among other things, that management had failed to fix failing, worn-out machines that had become breeding grounds for a coronobacter bacteria outbreak that had led to four baby hospitalizations and two babies dead. Food and Safety News reported that, quote, for several years, some of the equipment associated with the drying process at the Sturgis site was in need of repair. 
As a result, a number of product flow pipes were pitting and leaving pinholes. This allowed bacteria to enter the system and at times led to bacteria not being adequately cleaned out. This in turn caused product flowing through the pipes to pick up the bacteria that was trapped in the defective pipe and it ended up in baby's food. Why did Abbott Nutrition let its machinery get so compromised? Well, it's probably not the case that they didn't have the money to update their facilities. A couple of months after the whistleblower report, Abbott Laboratories authorized $5 billion in stock buybacks, a practice by which companies' profit is used not to improve the business or to pay workers, but to enrich shareholders. Now I bring this up because I know some listeners might take the position that markets are generally efficient, that businesses make good decisions about what to do with their profits out of a sense of self-preservation. They must invest in their internal infrastructure, right? They'll pay their workers well to attract and retain good talent. They'll only distribute profit once the bases have been covered. After all, why would a company behave in a way that ultimately hurt it in the long run? It's just not good business sense. Well, in fact, there are a disturbing number of short-term incentives built into corporate governance structure and into our legal system. In a 2014 Harvard Business Review article, Ben Lazenick unpacked why Americans weren't sharing, the sharing in the post-Great Recession economic recovery. Even though corporate profits were high and people were doing very well, some people were very, doing very well in the wake of 2008, he largely put the blame on stock buybacks. Because stock-based instruments make up the majority of CEO pay, in the short term, stock buybacks drive up stock prices, and so, so CEOs have every incentive to increase demand for their company's shares. He wrote, quote, while the top 0.1% of income recipients, which include most of the highest ranking corporate executives, reap almost all of the income gains, good jobs keep disappearing and new employment opportunities tend to be insecure and underpaid. 54% of their earnings, a total of $2.4 trillion was used to buy back their own stock. Dividends absorbed an additional 37% of their earnings. That left very little for investments in productive capabilities or higher income for employees. And now we see at what cost. Because of Abbott's mismanagement, formula is out of stock across the country. Parents are being forced to revert to homemade formulas that experts warn could lack vital nutrients or have other safety problems. The special diets required by some infants mean that substituting homemade formulas isn't even an option. For Darcy Browning, interviewed in a recent New York Times article, feeding her children dairy-based milk means they literally vomit blood. But the horror story doesn't end there. It wasn't just corporate malfeasance that led to this. It was also anti-competitive business practices among formula manufacturers. Just four companies sell almost all the baby formula in America. So if one goes down, it's a huge blow to supply. Moreover, the lack of competition has enabled companies to engage in price fixing, driving up the cost of formula, something I'll remind everyone babies literally need to survive. As David Dayen points out in a recent article at the American Prospect, baby formula consists mostly of dehydrated cow's milk, vitamins, and a ton of sugar. Yet it somehow cost at least $150 and as much as two, uh, $428 a month. That's high enough to sustain a mass crime ring, even before the price jumped 18% over the last year. In fact, Abbott, along with other manufacturers, got deemed for antitrust violations in China, a country that hasn't traditionally issued large fines for antitrust. 
This was after an investigation into price fix fixing they did by foreign baby food manufacturers. Somehow, Abbott's corporate mismanagement doesn't end there. The Sturgis lab where the outbreak originated appears to have intentionally falsified records and failed to disclose information relating to tests that revealed the presence of microorganisms in infant formula. They intentionally misled FDA auditors and celebrated not getting caught. They even declined to move from paper to electronic record keeping so they could limit oversight. Moreover, the whistleblower said he repeatedly raised concerns about plant safety with management, and his concerns were brushed away as petty. He was ultimately fired for his trouble. Now, Abbott isn't the only weak link here. After all, the FDA did miss Abbott's negligence during their audit, and they've rightly been criticized for how long it took them to react to the whistleblower report in the first place. They didn't even interview the whistleblower for two months. The FDA deserves scrutiny too, and upon closer inspection, it turned out the FDA is in fact in trouble as an organization. According to a 2020 New York Times report, the agency has too few resources and too little power to fulfill its key responsibilities. It also has become profoundly vulnerable to political interference and other special interests. There's a revolving door between FDA staffers and the industries they're tasked with policing. Just like arms manufacturers are now populating Biden's cabinet and driving us into a cold war with Russia. That has to stop. The FDA also is facing a funding crisis. The agency ensures the safety of a full 20% of all consumer spending. Think about that for a second. 20% of everything you buy has been safety checked by the FDA. But its relatively stagnant budget has not been able to keep up with increased production, especially growing imports from countries like China. According to a 2014 report from the National Library of Medicine, quote, the United States is increasingly reliant on imported materials and drugs, yet only 1% of all imports are inspected. It's not clear what the ratio is of FDA negligence to Abbott, Abbott Lab deceit in what happened here, or whether it's the FDA failing to pick up on shady business practices. But I personally would like an FDA that was well-trained and resourced enough to catch what were apparently pretty flagrant violations. But the more important takeaway is this. What we're talking about here is broad system failure, market failures, supply chain failures, and regulatory failures. The problem doesn't go away just by shutting down the FDA. That just lets the unethical business practices that got us here in the first place go unchecked. What we need is not more unfettered profit motive. What we need is more accountability not less. And while I'm open to a mechanism in addition to or outside of the FDA in providing that accountability, I know that laissez-faire capitalism got us here in the first place. And that here, where we are now, is already a world in which parents can't feed their children and we've already lost two innocent babies. So, you know, I was driven to check this out because I, I felt like we were making a couple of good points the other day when we talked about this after your radar. And when I dug into this, I got to confess, I wasn't surprised to see that at the root of this was, at the end of the day, a lot of corporate mismanagement. What do you make of that? Well, it doesn't, you said at one point in your radar, like somehow costs, like how could this cost so much to make this? Well, the regulatory compliance costs are very high. You can't just get into the, if I want to start a competing baby formula company, 
um, I'm probably not going to be able to do it because, and like this is not an idea. You're, you're absolutely right that I'm sure there's terrible corporate collusion between the regulator. That revolving door you're referring to is a massive problem. People staffing companies like Abbott go into the FDA and back and forth, and so that the regulatory regime is most favorable to already large companies. Because you're right, they do want to keep the price high. They don't want to face actual competition. They use the government to make sure they don't. I mean, again, I, I, I said this during my radar the other day, I, I would love, the, the, like the European formula should be able to be imported here. The FDA doesn't allow that. I'm sure the, the baby formula companies we have here also don't want European formula imported because cool. they want a, they, you're right, they want a monopoly. Not quite. I mean, they were all price colluding. It was a number of foreign yeah. companies that were all price colluding. The one organization, Robbie, that exists to prevent those that kind of collusion is the government. It's our antitrust wing, which is not doing, it's, not, it's also not empowered sufficiently or then there's not enough political will behind it to do what it needs to do because of the lobbying power of these industries to keep them from doing so. But in the radar, Robbie, I pointed out several actual concrete reasons, not abstractions, why the prices are so high. It is cost fixing. It also isn't too high to fix what needed to be done as evidenced by the enormous amount of money, $5 billion in profit that they chose to disperse to shareholders to drive up their prices so that CEO pay can go up instead of fixing the equipment on their lab that resulted in this crisis in the death of two children. Sure. So we don't have to look to, oh, I think it's the regulatory. What about the fact of the matter that outside of a regulatory framework, these businesses are choosing to behave in ways that drive up personal profit in the short term at the cost of literal lives for the rest of our community in the long term. Right. But my, my solution to that is to subject these companies to the to the robust kind of competition that would happen if you had more people in the baby formula making market. And how are we going to increase uh, uh, co competition? Are we going to fully fund and grow our antitrust department? I, because oh, laissez-faire capitalism doesn't lead to, to competition. More, it leads to price, price fixing. The, but the antitrust department, you, you can cre you cr create and often have a situation where it's not where it is benefiting the major players in the market to have this kind of thing because they just they stop competitive. I mean, this is why like Walmart loves minimum wage. They want high, high, high minimum wage because they know it shuts down all the like mom and pop stores that can't afford to pay their employees more. Walmart can afford it. Like, First of all, Walmart, does not, of Walmart does not love minimum wage. Walmart, they do. They've uh, endorsed it over and no, over again. Walmart uh, fought it tooth and nail. They were had a very adversarial relationship with Bernie Sanders. There was this moment, I believe, in 2019 when he went to a board meeting and it was a very tense back and forth. That That is not an, a, an accurate characterization of what's going on there with the minimum wage. But the point of the matter is, Robbie, look, I, I included some criticism of the FDA in here because I think it's right that oftentimes there are flaws, significant flaws in regulatory agencies. But to me, it's what is really clear is that the only agencies, the only um, checks and balances for which there's an account accountability and the only checks and balances that exist at all in some cases when we're talking about how to prevent anti-competitive business practices are the government. If, even if you believe in a limited role of government, it seems to me that this is exactly the role that you play to keep corporations from being able to do things that are anti-competitive, anti-capitalistic, driving smaller competitors out of the market, coordinating together to drive up the cost of something that's very sim easy to make, cheap to make, and an essential need. The, it's the, easy to make, we can just let, just let other people make it, and then they can't charge that much. No. If you, read, if you read the report, which I, I recommend everybody do, the Food and Nutrition Report, they make it very clear that it is not safe for most people to be making, to, to be making their own baby formula. One, it's very difficult to get the nutritional balance you need that mimics what's in breast milk. And to the point of breast milk, I know that some people have been saying everybody should just breastfeed. 
Obviously, if you can, that's great, but everybody can't. And in fact, there has have been huge lobbying efforts, huge lobbying efforts uh, to our own State Department not to, um, to, to threaten sanctions on countries that have a breast is best message because our own corporate lobbyists want to protect the market right, around. But, but, but don't you, absolutely, based on what formula. you're saying, though, don't you think, right, right, the, corp, the, the big corporations that are, have the intimate relationship with the government, and they're saying, "Yeah, this is a very difficult product. Only we can be trusted to make it, and, and yeah, absolutely, it needs to be tightly regulated. And we're the only ones that can do it. And like, don't you? See, maybe they're lying about that. Maybe they're well, no. saying that in order to protect the, their." When you have, when you, there is definitely a balance. I'm gonna, I'm gonna acknowledge there is a, a skepticism that everyone should bring to all of these conversations. I, I read enough in the pre preparation of this that I feel pretty confident about the overwhelming scientific consensus around. Um, formula being that if I had a child, I would prefer not to rely on mixing up powders and in, in, in chemicals and nutrients in my kitchen. I mean, there are people who have, whose kids have real health concerns that they can't drink anything with a dairy base or they'll, they will bleed out. The New York Times article that's from, from yesterday, I think people should read and see what the real exigency of the situation is. There are storage issues. There are preservative issues. It, babies are very sensitive and a very vulnerable population. So that is, that is the case. But what I'm only pushing back on, I don't disagree with your critique of government in large part, but the idea that government... The, the problem is a collusion between government and the private sector. That is literally, definitionally, what fascism is when we have that kind of corporate takeover, that cortocracy. Your solution to that seems to be to get rid of the government part and let the businesses do whatever they want. It seems to me that you can easily identify flaws in both factions and that you have to address both at the same time and not just let one or the other go laissez-faire. I mean, life is frustrating. It's you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. No. But I like, I like to, I need to call out uh, the the problems that I see with um, with the excessive with or the ways in which excessive regulation can actually be in the interests of the big players because it hurts smaller upstart competitors more. Well, I, I think it's maybe hear, this is uh, not a perfect case of that, but yeah. I you see that phenomenon. I, I agree that that happens sometimes. I look forward to a, a radar from you on that subject coming up soon. But up next, Congresswoman Katie Porter is reportedly concerned. Her Democratic colleagues don't share her interest in connecting to working Americans, especially on the issue of inflation. Stay tuned. Yesterday, Politico reported that Congresswoman Katie Porter gave a moving speech to Democrats during a private caucus meeting last week on the subject of inflation. Porter supposedly told colleagues about a recent grocery store trip where she noticed bacon spiked to $10 a pound. But according to Politico Porter's concern, her Democratic colleagues don't share her interest in connecting to working Americans. Porter went on to blame the Russian invasion of Ukraine for disrupting the food supply. She added that corporations are taking advantage of the situation as a cover to price gouge. Porter boiled it down to having stronger antitrust laws to give competition to the four companies that control American beef packing and the three that control cereal. So this political story was very interesting. It, it, it was clearly, it's the kind of story that like Katie Porter is glad to have because mm -hmm. it portrays her in this very favorable light. I'm sure there was some coordination to do that, which always makes me a little, Mm, but um, but uh, so so she said uh, she said according to Politico um, where is the quote I wanted to highlight from this 
She said that she was talking to her colleagues about how, uh, you know, if, if food costs too much and mm. this is what people are concerned about. And some colleagues said in response, oh, I, I didn't realize this was such a big issue. You know, it's not really showing up in the polls. I'm like, what, what polls are you reading? Inflation is the top concern of Americans in mm. poll after poll after poll. So it, is the Democratic Party that out of touch that they don't understand that they just totally sidetracked by Ukraine? So they don't understand I think what people are worried about. The average Congress member is a multimillionaire, and that is not a partisan issue. And I think the reality is that there are very few folks like Katie Porter who actually do have a background uh, that is working class. What, what was she, a, a teacher before joining Congress? She came in with the fleet of progressives, I believe, in 2018. It might have been the, the following cycle. And she has kind of made her bones in talking about working class people's issues. She won in a red district. She's been able to keep that district, um, you know, through more than one election cycle. And she's really demonstrated an ability to communicate with folks, I think, because she doesn't talk in these partisan terms and she understands what people on the ground are going through. It does not, frankly, surprise me at all that people in Congress, regardless of party, would be surprised that the not only that the cost of bacon is up to $10, but that that is even unusual because they aren't usually buying bacon at any price. It's very, uh, I, mean, I love this quote, the Arrested Development, the Lucille Bluth. How much could a banana cost? $10? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but literally, we had a cycle, what, two years ago where Nancy Pelosi got rightly uh, dragged uh, when she was bragging about her very expensive freezer that contained all this Talenti ice cream. Oh, the freezer. Which, look, it's not really about the ice cream. Like, ice cream, a pint of ice cream is kind of expensive no matter where you are. It's not about the idea of paying $7 for ice cream. But it's about the tone deafness of it all, right? It's about the fact that we were in the middle, or at the beginning, rather, of a economic crisis driven by COVID and lockdowns. And that's that's where we were. So I, I, I understand your skepticism about stories like this getting written up, but I have no skepticism at all about how out of touch. No, it, it certainly reflects are. a real problem. It, it's, yeah. it's the uh, the kind of um, successfully positioning a story or placing a story yeah. in a mainstream media outlet flattering to your congressperson. Is it? No, it's a good it's a good skill. Congrats <laughs> yeah, to that's, Katie that's, Porter's that's people for pulling it off. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the push for Democrats to focus on the economy comes as two-thirds of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck as inflation is making it harder to make ends meet. Just yesterday, we learned the consumer price index increased 8.3% from a year ago, higher than the 8.1% estimate according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. President Biden spun the news as a win for Team Blue, saying while it's heartening to see inflation moderated in April, the fact remains it's unacceptably high and bringing it down is my top economic priority. And while gas and used car prices did decline slightly in April, gas prices are back at record highs now, as well as new vehicle costs, food costs, housing, medical expenditures, utilities, airfare, and more. Airfare prices are, I've had to fly a lot lately. It's uh... It is ugly. ugly yeah, well, that's that's one way to keep people from not wearing masks on planes is oh, to make it unaffordable. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh no, no, no! I was still on every one of those flights. I didn't even bring a mask. So, as you know. All right, but like, here, here's the issue. Here's something that I've observed, and this bears some relationship to the radar I did yesterday. I've observed that some people, I believe it was Governor Newsom, had a plan to issue some uh, gas relief, I think through issuing some gas cards. There have been these other efforts by some Democrats in some parts of the country to provide some small bits of relief in that way. And I've seen some pushback from conservatives that say, well, this you can't just give money out to people. This isn't fair. This isn't right. 
And it seems to me obviously in conflict with their message that they are the people that are in touch. Their solution seems to be, let's open up drilling, let's get more American oil, which by the way, to the chagrin of many progressives, Joe Biden is in fact doing, he's doing what I think a lot of conservatives will want him to do. And in some ways, taking the wind out of the sails of that message. So what do you make of conservatives posturing themselves as being pro-populist and looking out for the interests of working people in a way that some of these out-of-touch Democrats we're talking about with Katie Porter aren't doing, but also coming out against some of the relief efforts and, and characterizing them as Democrats trying to, quote, buy votes? No, you're right. I think the Republican commitment to, you know, to populism is insincere mm-hmm. at best. Uh, I, I mean, it varies, obviously, it varies. from Republican to Republican. Some of this this new class of the J.D. Vance type people, who mm-hmm. just won the Senate primary, he all likelihood will be the next Republican senator from Ohio. Um, he and, and, and he's had a lot of sort of position evolutions as well. You know, he was very anti-Trump, now is, you know, <laughs> rapidly pro-Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, an, an ultra MAGA, if we're using that uh, <laughs> that terminology, that I actually now think is being appropriated by conservative. You know, it's on T-shirts and hats mm-hmm. already. I'm, you know, I'm I'm in the basket of deplorables. I'm ultra MAGA, that kind of thing. But th- there is not a lot of um, it's an it's an insincere. Commitment. I mean, there is a, there is a shift taking place. You can I notice it among like think tanks, like the Heritage Foundation, the major conservative think tank. I see how their positioning on uh, or, or their 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 rhetoric around their positioning is shifting to be more you know pro working class. But the, the easiest way they do that, people on the right do that, is to just amp up discussion of the cultural subjects where the working class has more conservative views and conservatives are much more happy to talk about because that feels easier to, you know, to bash the woke. Yeah, because you can only and, go uh, so far yeah. with your faux populism. You know, the Heritage Foundation came up in my radar yesterday because we were talking about the lobbying interests that are making it so difficult for Americans to afford housing. And, you know, uh, one of the, the people from the clip that I played came up through the Heritage Foundation and is now advocating strongly against raising the minimum wage for workers, even as we see profits sky high for the top 0.1% in CEOs, they are choosing to do stock buybacks, distributions, paying themselves instead of actually funneling the money toward the people who have created all of that that wealth. So it is interesting to see whether or not there are any political realignments that come out of the economic well, the, crisis. There's effort. a lot more conversation about uh, antitrust in, in Republican circles, in conservative think tank circles, mm-hmm. like way, way, way more than there was in the aughts or the 90s or the 80s. So there, there is a realignment, you know, going on to some extent. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if any policies ever do come out of that. But, mm-hmm. uh, but this, is a, this is a different, I mean, that's why I, I said when Elon shared that, you know, that, that chart saying, well, Democrats have just moved left, left, left. Republicans haven't. Right? I mean, the, the grain of truth, to the, 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 I mean, more than a grain, the, the truth to that is that Republicans are, are less, I mean, it's almost like less libertarian, less of my direction in some ways on economic issues than they were in the, you know, in the era of the Tea Party, when we want less taxes, less spending, less regulation. They, and just far, they, far, far they, more right when it comes to the social issues, like they're far more right whether on, or not, you know, yeah. racism well, is they're, real. They're, or... <laughs> well, well I, they're far more right on, uh, they, they've moved further right on immigration. I think that's a, the very clear one. Mm-hmm. Um, the social stuff, 
I, I don't know. The, the, their, their views abortion on... Abortion rights? Well, but their views on abortion that were, were... I don't think they're more conservative than they were in the 90s or the aughts. Well, um, the reality is when Roe v. Wade was decided, you know, people are talking about this a lot now. It wasn't a controversial decision. It was, right. you know, well, a bipartisan... The 70s, sure, yeah. ...decision. Yeah. And it was created, it was made into a, a polarizing issue by the Christian right as they gained power in the Republican Party. You know, the majority of Americans today, Republicans today support maintaining Roe, uh, you know, even if the, if you ask them different kinds of questions about how they feel about abortion, obviously polls come up with different results. So there does seem to be a way in which both parties just have gone in different directions on different axes, but the people in the middle, the overall majority of Americans still want, I'm sorry, I got to say it, Medicare for all <laughs> student I mean, cancellation or $15 I think a, a conservative would say the inability to acknowledge the existence of women of a major uh, organiza progressive organization. What do you mean by that? Is who more what do you mean by that? The ACLU Bobby? tweet I'm referring to. So, I, who who in your life hasn't acknowledged the existence of women? I'm sitting here a woman, and I've, I've heard this is expanding a lot, so you might as well just be specific about what we mean. I'm talking, about, I'm mean? talking about the ACLU. It's indicative Are of a kind of... Are you talking about the broader trend in some very niche liberal circles to because... Birthing persons. Yeah, because, of, yeah. because there exists some trans people right. who identify as men who can be pregnant because, you know, they can. Absolutely. There are edge cases to everything. Right. So sure. I, I'm curious, I'm curious, Robbie, if you, I've never personally met a pregnant trans man. Right. I have met some trans men. I've met no pregnant trans men. If you were to meet one, would you have, would you refer to them as a pregnant woman? I, I would use whatever language makes them most All right. So maybe, Absolutely. maybe even birthing person. Well, if if that individual person wants that language, sure. But that just because there are rare, like every category has rare exceptions to it. Yeah. That doesn't mean the category doesn't exist or is false. Yeah, look, I think I'm not accusing you of saying yeah, that no, no. at all. But there is a dancing around that now going on in a lot of language, just creeping its way from like educational centers into how these things are taught and discussed. And you and you can be for that. You can say that's fine. I'm just saying that is fairly radical. And is, a, it, is it radical just to defer it's to radical new wanted? language? Well, it, it, look, it is new. And I'm not going to sit here and say it's not uncomfortable for probably the mo most people, just like any new thing is uncomfortable. Like I said, I've only had the pleasure of meeting a couple of trans men in my entire life. It is what it is. But I also am really skeptical of why it is that we, this is such a huge part of the conversation when neither of us have ever been in an intimate personal situation where it's ever come up. I appreciate that there are some fringe parts of the left who perhaps go overextend themselves to seem like they're doing the right thing. But if I have a choice between a party who is hypersensitive to just wanting to be nice to people and not making them feel uncomfortable, and another party who thinks it's a punchline to talk about folks in that way, who aren't really hurting anybody, all the while trying to use that to distract from the fact that they are trying to crush a democratically supported $15 minimum wage effort in a state that voted for Donald Trump. You know, Trump voters want this and their legislature, their, their representatives are using people's confusion about new social issues to derail a substantive conversation about their economic rights. Then I, you know, I will, I will take the birthing person all day and night. And I just really think it's worth teeing up the contrast there and being really specific about what the stakes are. But if, if using the terminology birthing, sure, sure. I'm I've never said the word birthing person. I'm just saying from I a political like. standpoint, if the, there's no question that the Democrats offer a more on, on economic on a lot of the issues you're passionate about, offer a more uh, a friendly to the working class package of policies than Republicans do. So the fact that Republican, despite that, 
that Republicans are gaining ground and Democrats are losing ground horribly with this yeah. political block because they are so annoyed by things like the birthing person stuff should show Democrats that they should really stop doing that. Well, here's, here's what I will say. I've never heard personally, I don't like these people I'm about to mention, by the way, I, I don't care for them, but I've never heard Chuck Schumer say birthing person. I've never heard Joe Biden say birthing person. I've never heard Elizabeth Warren say birthing person. I've never say, heard Joe Biden say, uh, Bernie Sanders say birthing person. I don't think I've ever heard an elected Democratic official say it. I have seen some, you know, Why like do they make fun of activist say groups say it somewhere, I guess. I don't even know where the origin of it is. What I do know is that I turned on some Tucker Carlson the other night and I heard one of his guests say that women shouldn't be in the military. They're trying to put tampon in boys' bathroom. We've got to get women out of the military because they're bleeding all over the place. Now, should Democrats be highlighting the kind of rhetoric that is regularly coming out of the right like that? The fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene and a bunch of these other folks have these red laser eyes <laughs> that are supposed to Democrats be Democrats do highlight that all the time. You know, should we be... No, they don't highlight it over the time. Every time I turn on the TV, it's a conservative talking about birthing person. I don't hear all of them talking about that, those specific instances, the specific language that is coming out of some sections of the far like, right. In the, in the media, Marjorie Taylor Greene is talking about every day. Right. They talk about... Times. They say things like Marjorie... This is a com this is comms advice for Democrats, I'm giving you right now. It's not enough to say Marjorie Taylor Greene is crazy. It's not enough to say Donald Trump is racist because there is plausible deniability behind those kind of vague statements. You have to be able to specifically articulate what it is that something's doing wrong. And saying things like, well, Donald Trump thinks Mexico's not sending their greatest people. To people who like Donald Trump, that's not a racist statement. That's like a factual statement that says, I think the Mexicans are great. They're just not sending the great ones. That's how you have to ha be in that mindset and know that when you say things like, well, he's just racist for that, that you lose credibility in, in that. Everyone should be more specific is my argument because if you are more specific about your critique, it's diff more difficult to breeze away and be characterized as some like crazy CRT zealot who just wants everyone to hate white children or whatever the rhetoric is. Well, I you think know? people like the people you mentioned, Biden himself, could do themselves a world of good by actually maybe mocking or making fun. Barack Obama used to do this. He used to, he, he actually, in s several instances, right, criticized the kind of, you know, fainting couch woke college students who don't want to hear dissenting opinions. He said that in, in commencement addresses. He yeah, did. and I got to say. And he was say, the most popular president of I think it's kind of a memory. bummer. I think that's kind of an Obama, in my view. Look. I think that was tactically smart I'll, I'll, and something Biden and Kamala, Kamala Harris wants to up her poll numbers. That's what she should do. I'll stop on this. There was a, an instance of a community out west. I think it was in uh, maybe Utah or Nevada, where there was a community that, that put, there was a, uh, an anti-women, trans girls in sports law that was put forward. There was only one trans girl in sports in the entire state or entire community, I forget which it was. And when that law came down the pike, all the community members came together and said, actually, this is ridiculous. This is obviously just trying to attack this one child and we're not for it, even if we don't understand trans issues, even if we're not about that. I want to live in a world where people realize that there are individuals at stake when we're having these conversations and not just abstract principles. And I don't believe as a coalition builder who wants to have a broad populist movement that includes everybody against the 1% against the oligarchy, that we should be throwing people under the bus to win little political battles. When, we, when, Trump, when Biden says ultra MAGA and Republicans put it on a shirt, it neutralizes that. And I wish that more liberals had confidence in their morals and their ethics and protecting the communities they say they care for. And when someone says, oh, birthing person is ridiculous, fine. Call them something else, ask them what they want to be called. We can workshop that phrase, but it's not, a, it's, it shouldn't become a punchline at the end of the day. Well, that's, yeah, that's just my- Yeah, but so there are some women who feel they are thrown under the bus by accommodations in sports, like what that category you just mentioned, 
uh, for trans people. It's, 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 not, it's not always, there's not everyone in unanimous agreement that this is fine. Sure. There are people on the team sometimes who are frustrated with Difficult issue, no question. But it's not just, it's not just rhetoric. It's not just words sometimes. All right, we've gone on forever on this subject. I don't know where we even started with it's this It's always block. a pleasure, Robbie. Oh, pleasure is all mine. Up next, Senate Republicans and West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin blocked legislation to codify Roe v. Wade yesterday, and we'll discuss that with the rising panel. Stick around. On this vote, the yeas are 49, the nays are 51. Three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative. The motion is not agreed to. That was Vice President Kamala Harris after Senate Republicans, along with West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin, blocked legislation to codify Roe v. Wade. Here's Harris after the vote. This vote clearly suggests that the Senate is not where the majority of Americans are on this issue. It also makes clear that a priority for all who care about this issue, a priority should be to elect pro-choice leaders at the local, the state, and the federal level. Because what we are seeing around this country are extremist Republican leaders who are seeking to criminalize and punish women from making decisions about their own body. Here with us to discuss is public defender and commentator Alaimi Aluren and Newsweek contributor Denise Long. Welcome to you both. Morning. Good morning. Morning. So Alaimi, I mean, I wonder if Kamala Harris means we have to replace, she has to replace people in her own party with more pro-choice legislators because they didn't even have Joe Manchin's vote. They didn't even have, obviously they were not going to get to 60 votes, but they couldn't get to, uh, they couldn't get even every single member of their own coalition to support this. Exactly, which I think is a great issue people are having with Democrats now. I'm not going to be unreasonable and say that she's not wrong in order for them to get the vote and have the numbers that we need more pro-choice senators and politicians. But the reality is people are very frustrated with Democrats constantly responding, you know, vote blue, vote blue, vote Democrat as the response to any time something oppressive happens. But then these same things keep happening. And unfortunately, it's not like this was their first opportunity that they could have tried to codify Roe. Roe has been in existence for 50 years. They've had ample opportunities. So I think people are a little a little dissuaded and disenchanted with the Democrats right now. Yeah, that's a good point, especially since, you know, Democrats are right now campaigning, Jim Clyburn for one, are campaigning down in Texas to elect a, uh, you know, anti-choice Democrat there who is running against a pro-choice progressive that they could be supporting. You know, Barbara Lee was asked about this recently on Many Hassan's show, you know, how, why should Democratic voters believe and trust in you uh, that we need to just elect more pro-choice Democrats when even the Democratic Party establishment is out here campaigning right now against a pro-choice Democrat? You know, uh, Denise, what do you make of all of this from a conservative perspective? Is this a fight that uh, that uh, Democrats should take on right now or should they do what they've been doing for years, which is try to downplay this issue in court more moderate, uh, they call more moderate uh, voters, I would call them more conservative voters? Well, part of the question that I have, Brianna, is the extent to which what they put forth on the floor actually reflects 
the vast majority of American sentiments regarding abortion, which is the idea that there should be some allowance for exceptions regarding rape and incest. But we also know that that is a very, very small percent. I think it doesn't even amount to 2% of abortions that are sought. Uh, so that is part of the question. Uh, you know, I think there is something to be said about the extent to which uh, local government uh, state governments are uh, going to the other extreme where they are outlawing all abortions in in all circumstances. Uh, and I think that's been the fear. Uh, that's what people uh, have been pushing back from, from the uh, against the conservative perspective. And I think also what we haven't seen a lot of is people really talking about what this majority opinion actually speaks to. And if our reaction in public, if people's reaction in public is actually talking about something that isn't uh, proposed to happen in the majority ruling in the first in the first place. Yes, we do know conservatives want to outlaw um abortions uh, because the idea is that it is an innocent life regardless of how that life came to be. Well, we definitely wanted to get to this. The ACLU tweeted last night, abortion bans disproportionately harm black, indigenous, and other people of color, the LGBTQ community, immigrants, young people, those working to make ends meet, people with disabilities, protecting abortion access is an urgent matter, racial and economic justice. As I noted in response to their tweet, uh, seem to be missing a key group. No? Women, maybe? Can they say the word? Are they capable? Are we, we just not willing to uh, define it anymore? Uh, what do you think, Alimi? Listen, obviously this is an issue that disproportionately um, impacts women. To shoot the ACLU some bail here, I think what they're probably trying to reference in this list is that the women that will be most impacted are poor people, are poor, poor women, you know, poor black and brown women, immigrants, people with less access, as opposed to, you know, I think sometimes they can but dismiss- LGBT women? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what well, to yeah, I do think offend that, anyone, but... Get, get canceled on your own, Robbie. <laughs> yeah. Look, well, Glenn Greenwald made this point, saying that, you know, I, I, you know, straight people are probably going to be implicated by abortion rights more than gay people by the nature of how, you know, reproduction works. But th I think there is another point to be made, whether or not they're disproportionately affected or not, is that... A, 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 you know, some per percentage of people who are seeking abortions are the victims of rape. And certainly people aren't checking people's sexual orient orientation before they decide right. to rape a person. So, you know, they're not I, disproportionately affected. Dis so I think, that, I think perhaps that, affected as well. Yeah, I think <laughs> a, a really important critique, and I think a lot of liberals need to take key to this, is that they over rely on this idea of disproportionality and disparate impact to make points that don't necessarily need that for the underlying point to be a sound and ethical one. Um, and Denise, I want to come to, uh, you, were, you, you were saying something earlier that was related to this. Um, you were asking about, uh, you, you were talking about, you know, how this is playing among voters in their home versus in public, and the emphasis that some liberals, some people who are defending uh, abortion rights across the political spectrum, put on the kind of less common, less common reasons for abortion, rape, incest, et cetera. And I take your point that why is there so much emphasis on that when it's such a small sliver of, uh, motivates such a small sliver of abortions? But there's an opposite point too. If that is such a there was such a consensus about abortions for those reasons, why is it that Republicans, that certain conservatives are keep pushing for uh, 
to get rid of abortion rights for those areas. The case that this is all predicated on, the Dobbs case out of Mississippi, only did not ask to get rid of the Roe v. Wade. It only asked for a 15-week abortion ban, and it's you know, and it did obviously um, not protect uh, rape and incest, incest exceptions. But why do conservatives keep setting themselves up to have to defend such an unpopular policy if, in fact, it's such a small number of abortions? Shouldn't they just say, okay, we'll let those ones slide? I think it gets down to the core question uh, around when life begins. And I think the conservative perspective is life begins at conception. And at under what circumstance does a government uh, morally uh, give largesse opportunity and again funding to the ending of that life regardless of how that life came to be whether it came from consensual sex with the intent to give birth or whether it came from a failure of um you know condoms birth control all of those types of things or if it came from uh forced uh sex and so the question there becomes if you are a hardliner on life beginning at conception and that we have no moral right to uh, support the ending of that life, then yes, you would say that there are no exceptions to abortion because you would essentially be saying that you are supporting the murder of a life. I want to come back, though, to the, this tweet, not because this single this tweet is like the most important thing ever, but I think it is so reflective of exactly why, if Democrats are asking themselves, why are we losing? Why are we about to get wiped out at every level? Why are you know Republicans about to to destroy us in in in, in the uh, the upcoming midterms? Possibly then again in the presidential election. What are we doing wrong? And if they are honest with themselves, they will look they will they will look at things like this and say our inability to acknowledge that women exist to say the to, to as an organization that defends you know the, the rights of various people to say this is an issue that affects women they can't say that because unhinged crazy activists in their coalition their coalition who are not important and don't represent enough voices don't want them to say that and they should just ignore those people and offend them as because it doesn't matter but they're so afraid of offending them that that the democrats are going to lose at every level for the foreseeable future and i think Listen, that's a, I, it's a huge yeah. issue if, if I was going back of... to that because that point is incredibly important, Robbie, as a diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, both scholar and consultant and trainer, this is what I have seen uh, all the time in doing this work is that people on the left um, are very loud and very wrong often when they're talking about this disproportionality. A lot of the pushback that you are seeing around the anti-racism work that came out of the murder of George Floyd is being uprooted now because of these extreme levels of rhetoric calling abortion uh, moderation ban or whatever white supremacy is fascinating to me, especially considering the history of uh, eugenics and all of that in regard to uh, controlling the Negro population in America. So you are absolutely right. Part of the reason they are losing people, bleeding supporters, is because of this extreme nonsensical view of things and their misuse of uh, legitimate social justice issues. Yeah. Uh, Alimia, we want to give you an opportunity to respond. 
I, I absolutely disagree with most of what's just been said. If there's anybody that panders to the craziest part of their base more and nonsensical information, it's the Republicans. If they're going to have an argument, I think it's that the Republicans do it better. If anything, I think what Democrats' problem is, is they never pander to who are the leftists or who are uh, being diagnosed as the crazies, right? Joe Biden is a person that was elected because you know he was the lesser of two evils. There are a significant amount of people that don't necessarily support that choice or think he was the best and most progressive, but they voted for him because he was less worse than Trump and they thought maybe Maybe we could move him left, and that's not what's been shown. I think what's actually happened when you see decisions like Roe, it's not just hysteria. The the draft opinion that we saw does seem poised to roll back rights rights that will affect these different minority groups that you see the ACLU talk about. It is roll back to be it is set to roll back those rights too, and so that's what you're seeing as the issue. But the responses, even from the Democrats, are not supportive even in rhetoric. It's one thing that you can't codify Roe or you can't do anything substantive right now to protect the rights of the American people or who are your voters base. But even when you come out, you criticize the people on your own in your own party and how they're going about protests and the decisions. So I think what's happening actually is Dems do not do enough or say enough to support their own voter base. And I think that is what's happening. Not that they're pandering um, too much to the left. They're not pandering enough to the left. Hmm. Yeah, Manchin's the one that's holding up the agenda, not some crazy loon AOC or whatever. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, D- Denise and Alimi, we got to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you. And coming up next, well, Bitcoin had an interesting week. It's crypto dead. Uh, Liz Wolf, associate editor at Reason, will join us to give us all the latest. Crypto investors are facing uncertainty as Bitcoin experiences some serious volatility despite this week's ups and downs. Currency's market value is still down about 50% from its peak last November. The Fed's interest rate hikes, inflation, and recession fears have caused the stock market as a whole to tumble, and things show no signs of getting better anytime soon. Joining us now to weigh in is one of our favorite crypto commentators, associate editor at Reason Magazine, Liz Wolf. Welcome, Liz. Thanks for having me. So what is causing this uh, market volatility right now? Can you unpack that a little bit for us who are not so crypto savvy? Absolutely. I mean, we've been in a period of extreme crypto hype. We saw this with the degree to which traditional investors really flocked toward crypto, the degree to which Coinbase really caught on. I mean, tons of Americans now have Coinbase accounts. Uh, It really permeated the sort of discourse. We even saw this with NFTs and the sort of like moment when like Justin Bieber was buying into Bored Ape NFTs like years ago, maybe even just three years ago. This is not something that had any sort of mainstream purchase. And in the last year or so, we have seen it really uh, gather and garner a lot of popularity. So I think some of this volatility is going to be normal. And I think people panicking and trying to exit is probably the wrong approach. Yeah, I saw uh, Sagar and Jetty, former host of this show, at Breaking Points, he tweeted, anytime I see a story about how Bitcoin crashed to 30,000, I, c- I can't even believe it because I was sharing moon memes at like 9,000 and at 15, I was losing my mind. So his point being, like, like even the, when it was much less than what it is now, even after having crashed, it was still a really exciting thing. So we should keep that in perspective, right? Yeah. Well, one thing that I think is really interesting is like the timing of this is especially bad because this comes on the heels of Coinbase's regulatory filing, which Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, was talking about a little bit on Twitter. But I think the the regulatory filing basically said something along the lines of in the event of Coinbase, this intermediary, this exchange declaring bankruptcy, uh, customers cryptocurrency may not be protected the way that a traditional bank would protect customers' funds if they declared bankruptcy. 
a lot of this is a function of the regulatory framework and the way the U.S. government treats crypto exchanges. It's a very green territory, and so they're treated differently than banks are. But I think a lot of people saw this coupled with Coinbase's sort of slightly depressed earnings reports and said, oh, God, the crypto bubble is bursting. Everything's crashing. What they're missing from this is that the Coinbase executives have been preparing for this type of thing for a long time. This is a standard regulatory filing. Um, This is part of why Coinbase has really been amassing really massive cash and crypto reserves to prepare for events like this and to ensure their customers' safety. And it's also like one of the reasons why customers need to be considering the trade-offs very closely, because when you decide to put your cryptocurrency into an intermediary that faces regulatory scrutiny like Coinbase, you are necessarily compromising some of the security of those funds. You can always put your cryptocurrency in an offline wallet or a more private wallet, but fundamentally what you're doing is you're making a trade-off for the sake of ease and convenience. And so Coinbase customers are slightly less protected than more savvy and more um, ultra tech minded sort of like offline crypto users. And so that's not, that's not a bug. That's not a problem with cryptocurrency. That's a problem with the intermediaries that people are flocking toward. Yeah, we're hearing a lot more, I think, interest from people in Capitol Hill, from uh, political figures in what is the right approach to regulate crypto and or, or does it need to be like, you know, destroy? That's what some, I think, political <laughs> leaders want. I think that would be bad. Crypto isn't going away. It's a promising and interesting technology to to foster a, a greater sense, I think, of privacy on the Internet in financial transactions. So if it's going to be regulated, it has to be regulated carefully and delicately. You know, what are, are you seeing in the future with respect to how Congress is going to approach this technology? I think Congress is approaching it in a very clumsy and foolhardy way. And I understand why. Right. Like this is something that's incredibly buzzy right now. And I think a lot of people look at the crypto space and they see crazy crypto bros and they sort of see there's an implication. There's a strain in a lot of this discourse that almost assumes that crypto is some sort of get rich quick scheme. Uh, And people are entering with the expectation of getting crazy, unheard of returns, you know, 20 percent, 30 percent after merely a year or two years of being invested. That's not how any part of our economy works. Uh, you know, that's that's really not. You should always be very skeptical of those types of claims and you shouldn't count on them. And that also applies to the crypto space where people are peddling a lot of that type of thing. But none of that means that cryptocurrency or the technology that it's built on blockchain are in any way um you know, pointless or foolish or the sort of province of crazy people. These are really valuable technologies. And I think we're beginning to test use cases for them and trying to figure out what's the best way to apply them. Part of the problem is when you invite more government regulation and scrutiny, um, you know, we have a lot of legislators who are trying to write laws and they don't actually understand uh, how cryptocurrency space operates. They don't understand how a lot of these things function. We have a gerontocracy filled with 70 and 80 year olds. I'm not sure they're really super attuned to what's going on. And we see them crafting really bad regulations as a result of that. Well, Liz, I'm in my, I'm 36 and I'm not sure I understand really what's going on. But I, I hear a lot of people saying things like, you know, this is a Ponzi scheme. It's very suspicious and untoward that you have all of these celebrities who've never said much in the way of anything about finances suddenly going on late night shows to hawk their ape 
NFT. The and Matt Damon commercial. Matt the Damon, Matt Damon commercial. commercial. And that this is why people are suspicious, that it seems like they're very affluent people who are getting into this and coming out unscathed while the, you know, the proletariat is left ha ha holding the bag. What do you see to say to people who say, this is evidence that this is in fact untoward and something akin to a Ponzi scheme? Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth noting that the rich people, if they are heavily invested in it, they're not going to come out unscathed if they, you know, give in to the panic uh, pulling out moment that we're in. Um, I, I, I take that criticism very seriously, though. The idea that this is a highly hyped space and that a lot of the people who are boosting it might not necessarily know what they're boosting or the implications of the technology. As I see it, you know, I have a decent amount of crypto and I have a Coinbase account. But the thing that I'm really interested in, other than, you know, getting richer because of my cryptocurrency, is what other uses do we have for blockchain technology? I see this as something that has potential to reduce friction in like real estate transactions um, and within our legal system to do a better job of indicating in an unfalsifiable um, and, and very quickly verifiable way, basically using these ledgers to ensure that people's claims of ownership are legitimate. I see this as something that can really cut down a lot of the friction and the middlemen that we see uh, within sectors like the real estate industry. So I'm interested in thinking about blockchain technology, not just as this thing that like undergirds dumb board ape NFT stuff, um, though I understand why that's appealing to people. I don't think that's really the ultimate liberatory use of this type of thing. Mm. So when people are peddling that, you should be a little suspicious. Mm. Well, Liz, thank you so much for breaking that down for us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, Al Jazeera reporter Shireen Abu Akla was fatally shot yesterday by Israeli forces allegedly in the occupied West Bank during an Israeli raid. Katie Halpert will join us to discuss that. Stick around. Yesterday, Al Jazeera reporter Shireen Abu Akla was fatally shot by Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank during an Israeli raid. Shireen was a respected journalist in the Middle East and became a household name during her more than two decades of reporting in Palestinian territories. Hundreds of Palestinians carried her body in Ramallah and enchanted with our soul, with our blood, we sacrifice for you martyr, which in Arabic sound very similar to her name, similar to her name, Shireen. Unfortunately, the U.S. is handling the situation much differently than it did when U.S. filmmaker Brent Renaud died in Ukraine. When Renaud was killed in Ukraine, the State Department blasted it as a gruesome example of the Kremlin's indiscriminate actions. But in regards to Shireen's killing, State Department spokesperson Ned Price said this, quote, We are heartbroken and condemn the killing of American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla in the West Bank. The investigation must be immediate and those responsible must be held accountable. Even the New York Times refused to blame Israel and said only that the trailblazing journalist died at 51, foregoing that she was shot in the head by Israeli snipers. Jesus. Host of the Katie Halper Show, Katie Halper joins us to make sense of this strategy. Welcome, Katie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, talking to us about this. Uh, so is the was the media coverage uh, as hypocritical and biased as I just indicated there? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is kind of part of a larger pattern that we see whenever the United States or the Western media is dealing with violence uh, committed by Israel. There's a whitewashing, there's a downplaying, it's a cycle. Um, and we see it all here. Uh, it also starts with the fact that Israel targets the kind of notoriously targets uh, 
members of the press. And it should be said that Shireen Abu Akleh and the other journalists, another journalist was shot in the back. She was shot fatally. They both had uh, were wearing press helmets and press vests. So it was very clear there was no doubt that these were members of the press. But Israel kind of notoriously targets members of the press. Uh, they shot and killed two during the March of Return, two journalists who were covering the March of Return, two members of the press. They maimed two other ones. Just last year, they bombed a building that housed uh, Al Jazeera and the AP. And what's really important in this story is that uh, the Israeli government basically immediately lied. They said that she had been shot by uh, Palestinians, and they even released a video just showing someone shooting. Uh, it was so uh, debunkable. The Israeli human rights organization, B'Tselem, uh debunked it. They went to the spot that uh, the alleyway that was presented in these videos released by the Israeli government and saw that there was no way in the world that that was where the shots that killed Shireen came from. So then the Israeli government kind of walked it back. But the fact that they would so blatantly provide video that had nothing to do with the shooting uh, reveals just exactly how dishonest they are and how they're so used to getting away with things because there's such a culture of impunity, both within Israel and, of course, the United States uh, refuses to ever condition aid on any respective human rights. And from the, the headlines, as you said, there you know what's missing in the headlines is that the Israeli forces are the people uh, who shot Shireen. Uh, and when uh, Ali Abu Nima from Electronic Intifada rightly compared and contrasted the State Department's response to this shooting, which was tragic, to the State response, State Department's response to the tragic shooting of um, Brent Renault, and there was not a lot known, and they immediately, with Brent Renault's uh, shooting and killing, they immediately uh, attributed it to, to Russia, to the Russian government. Uh, before they investigated at all. In this case, they're calling for an investigation, even though there's footage of it, which we didn't have in the case of Brent Renault. So we, we actually have uh, footage of the shooting and its aftermath from Al Jazeera. This is fairly horrifying, so fair warning for those of you watching at home. If you do not want to watch this, just jump ahead 30 seconds. else I want to point out is that she was wearing a helmet and she was um, they managed to shoot her precisely in the head where she wasn't covered I believe it went through the neck so this requires major precision shooting um, and the IDF frequently brags about how precise they're able to be and how trained their snipers are so the fact that they did this to a member of the press is just, it, I was going to say shocking, but sadly it isn't shocking. It's typical, but it's something that's worth bearing in mind that this was not an accidental shooting of a member, of a well-identified press member. So I'm, I'm seeing, so the Times of Israel claims that uh, they offered to, the Israeli government offered a joint investigation that the Palestinian Authority has declined uh, to participate in. What do you think about that? 
Well, it's not surprising. I mean, Beth Selim, the uh, Israeli human rights organization I mentioned before, refuses to cooperate with the Israeli government in these investigations because they engage in such whitewashes. So it doesn't surprise me that they wouldn't want to lend legitimacy to these investigations, which do result in very sanitized versions of reality. Katie, you do such a good job of tracking the media coverage of these kinds of moments. Has there been any shift in how the you know the killing is described uh, now that we have the the footage and there's been so much pushback from many progressives online about the passive voice that's been used in describing um, you know uh, Shireen's death that completely erases um, the the actor from the sentences and all of these headlines. Well, I'd have to go back and check, but there haven't been many updates. I know that at least. Um, when uh, Sana Saeed tracked some of these headlines, uh, and these were recorded after, uh, you know, at least three eyewitnesses uh, had test, you know, t their testimony had been collected. And you have at, Al uh, at BBC, it's Al Jazeera reporter killed during Israeli raid in West Bank. The AP writes Al Jazeera reporter killed during Israeli raid in West Bank. Fox News says Al Jazeera reporter dies following disputed incident in the West Bank. Um, so there's really no skepticism of the way that the Israeli government reported on this. And just imagine if, if Russia had released a statement saying that they were not involved in the shooting of Brent Renault, uh, how that would be accepted and reported on by the Western media. I have a feeling it would not be uh, reported on in the same way. So the, the Palestinian Authority has declined to participate in this investigation, uh, perhaps because they don't want to lend it credibility. What other mechanisms are there to achieve accountability here? Well, the United States, of course, could do something, but they won't. Um, I mean, what's interesting, and, and the reason probably there will be slightly more accountability than there would otherwise be, uh, is that she was an American citizen. I'm sure if she were just a Palestinian citizen, um, this wouldn't have received as much attention and there wouldn't be this scrutiny to the degree that there is uh, that that Israel is undergoing now. Um, I also wanted to just read something that she had said. Sharina Bouakle had been uh, like shortly before her death, she was in an Al Jazeera video reflecting on her career. And one of the things she said was, I will never forget the volume of destruction, nor will I forget that death was sometimes very close to us. Uh, and then she also said, it may not be able to change the reality, but at least I was able to convey the people's message and voice, which is, you know, very tragic and moving in light of the fact that the death that was sometimes very close to them mm -hmm. actually arrived for her. Yeah. And, um, you know, her saying that at least she was able to convey the people's message and voice. The, the hope is that, you know, the tragedy um, of her killing, uh, of her murder, really, let's call it what it is, of her murder, even that conveys the people's message and voice in a way. Yeah. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. We have an election coming up in 2024 in which it's very possible that we will have Donald Trump facing off against Joe Biden. If, if one of those people wins the presidency, he will be governing while he's 80, in his 80 years of uh, age. That is, we've never seen anything like that before. And frankly, I think it were, it's a real risk. 
You know, I, I just turned 80, and I can just tell you, John, the, the, you lose a step. Uh, your judgment is not quite as clear as it was. There are a variety of other things you can't do much about. Um, and if, to put somebody in that office with those kind of vulnerabilities and giving them four years, we don't know where things will go. Uh, and I, I just think it's a mistake uh, for either party to put forward people who are going to be essentially trying to run the country uh, in their 80s. That was CNN's senior political analyst and a White House advisor to former presidents Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton, David Gergen. We're all much younger presidents. <laughs> <laughs> President Biden is 79 years old, and Trump, who has been toying with another run for the White House, is 75 years old. Look, I got to say, I think the conversation about age that all these people are having, especially the Democrats, the way they're having it, is a sidestep around the substantive conversation about President Biden's specific mental acuity. It's a conversation they've been sidestepping since the primary. I remember Julian Castro and Cory Booker once made reference to it after one of the debates, and it felt like they were, you know, caned off the stage and weren't ever allowed to open their mouths and were out of the debate, uh, out of the campaign process altogether very shortly thereafter. You're not allowed to talk about it. And it's important to talk about because there are other old people who don't, do not seem to have the same amount of cognitive decline. Sorry to say it, but Bernie Sanders is still racing up and down elevators, sharp as a tack. No one is having this conversation about him, even though when he was running, of course, there was a lot of hand-wringing about what his age meant, even though all these other people are the same age. Elizabeth Warren is a very similar age. To Trump all doesn't people, seem like he's aged very much. He's the same, he's the same guy as he was yep. five years ago. Preserved from the inside from all of that uh, fast food. <laughs> People just age. People age differently. And Biden, I, I never know. I, you know, I don't want to try to diagnose someone from far. I think it's annoying when people do that. I'd, his ability to communicate clearly has absolutely declined. It has declined dramatically since he was vice president. Yeah. Compare Biden now to Biden then. It's not about it's totally a different. stutter. It's not about any of that stuff. Just no. compare him to himself. It's a market change. It is. Now, how much, right, how much acuity loss is there? Don't know. Hard to say. Maybe it is just, you know, he's slower and he communicates less effectively. But maybe maybe there's something more than that going on. And this job ages you. Maybe, yeah. so, Trump aside, who seems like the same person at <laughs> the end great. of it, it's just yeah. amazing. I mean, look, he looks like Trump still. He didn't, yeah. he didn't look vastly, which is odd. Like Obama, pictures of Obama at the yeah. beginning of the end, pictures of Bush at yeah. the beginning of the end. Maybe These are like people the, who age, age yeah. 30 years. Maybe it's like the Jean-Luc Picard thing where, you know, if you already look, you know, Patrick Stewart from right. Star Trek, <laughs> if you already look kind of in your 60s when you're in your 40s, then you are looking I'm loving your finding reboot. out that you're this huge Star Trek <laughs> fan. I was waiting to, because we're always talking about nerdy subjects, a lot of Harry Potter and Star Wars, yeah. you know, with me and the producers. And you, yeah. you don't You're Harry Potter much, and but... Star Wars. I'm Star Trek and acapella. It's, oh. it's a sad group up it's, in here. It's amazing. But I mean, the other part of this issue is that there is not the deep bench in the Democratic Party in terms of uh, youth that there is on the right. And that has to do with a long-term failure to foster new talent, and in fact, a, a choice to aggressively attack a lot of the young up-and-comers, in part because some of them have expressed an interest in a more progressive brand of politics that is antithetical to the interest of mainstream corporate Dems. Yeah. And this is a, I mean, this is a national security issue. We do have, hopefully done or, or, or lessened or diminished, but a horrible pandemic, a disease running around that disproportionately, massively disproportionately affects, cripples and kills the elderly. Mm -hmm. So to have that going on now, a, you know, a once in a century pandemic event 
And at the time that's happening, we happen to have our oldest government ever. The people at senior levels in House, Senate, presidency, the court, older than ever. Mm. And, you know, we're... I get, we're, we're lucky that it hasn't affected them worse than that. We, we haven't had uh, a high-profile um, uh, death, but we, we could have. We certainly could have. Yeah, and your point about the court is a good one. That's another place where Republicans have been much more strategic about picking people who are younger and have more longevity. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we all know that we're in the situation we're in now with all of the coverage about the potential overturning of Roe because we had not only someone who was old but who, you know, sadly was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer while she was still... Uh, while Obama was still president, but who chose, despite her age, flagrantly disregarding her declining health to stay in office because she felt hubristically that Hillary Clinton was going to be president of the United States of America and that it was her turn and that she would like to be replaced by the first female president. Yeah, that didn't uh, didn't turn out so well. You have people like uh, Senator Feinstein, who's who is very much confirmed now by by major media reporting to be in a position of severe mental decline yep. where she absolutely cannot continue to do this job it, yeah. but is continuing to do it and members of the democratic party will barely even say anything about it this is this is something that i i really think is a huge difference between democrats and republicans and why republicans manage to have more credibility to a lot of voters than democrats no matter what a democrat does another democrat will not criticize them the family is strong <laughs> once you're in your, your blood. And if you're an outsider like uh, Jessica Cisneros or um, India Walton or Senator Anita Turner, you are considered to be the enemy almost more so than a, a Republican. You have uh, uh, Joe Manchin holding up the entire Democratic Party agenda, making it impossible to codify Roe, even if they got rid of the filibuster. He's still our friend. I'm sure Democrats will go and support any re-election campaigns he has. I saw, you know, we talked, I think, earlier this week about a congressman who was unwilling to say that he would uh, oppose Kirsten Sinema or support her opponent in an upcoming challenge. Democrats can do no wrong. Obviously, everybody in the world can see that Democrats are doing things wrong. So if you're a Democratic voter and you're an independent voter and you're thinking about joining a party, why would you want to join a group as delusional as that who was unwilling to do any kind of introspection or public criticism? Yeah, you're right that re- Republicans are different. They? they are happy to feud and happy to fight. I saw Dan Crenshaw and Marjorie Taylor Greene were yelling at each other on Twitter. They're happy to have like public feuds yeah. at this point. It's uh, They're kind of just... It's this performative entertainment quality that sure. the Republican Party has taken. Professional it is wrestling. Very, it is very weird. But it's entertaining. It's, it is entertaining. It is it is professional wrestling. But yeah, it, it is different. It feels like there's more of a a tradition of silence of of just going with the flow and not yeah. not speaking out of turn on the Democratic side. And that saps energy. There's a lot more energy on the right. No one can deny that. Yeah, it's uh, but they're so old. They're so <laughs> old. I know we, we get, I, I get accused of ageism all the time. I like old people, but maybe not at the most senior levels of our government. See, to me, it's not about the age. To... It's, it's about the health and mm-hmm. the mental acuity. Sure. Because I do, I mean, it's not, that's not just because of Bernie Sanders, but it is in part because of Bernie Sanders. I'm not going to look at a field and see what I perceive to be the most qualified candidate and dismiss them because of age, unless there are these other factors. And again, I don't like Hillary Clinton. I'm very much on the record <laughs> about that. I, I was no big fan of hers, but she seems sharp as a tack, too. Mm-hmm. Like, and she, all of these people are in the same age bracket. So it really, I think, is about what the individual can do, and that's how you avoid some of these ages. It it affects people differently. It affects people differently. All right, well, tomorrow on Rising, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky will be here for Rising Fridays, and they'll be speaking with Amazon leader Chris Smalls about what's next for the organization and the union drive.
Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. I love a podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the Hills Podcast uh, channel for more original content and coverage of developing news throughout the day. And everybody send uh, Kim your get well wishes uh, as she battles COVID. She's going to be fine, of course, but uh, that's why she's not with us today. We hope to have her back very, very soon remotely, of course, and we will see you all uh, next week. Bye-bye.